Well, I hope you are along for the ride and in the journey with us as we have been studying now for about three weeks, I guess, uh, through the Purpose Driven Life uh, Redone, uh, answering the question, what on earth are you here for? Hopefully that is a question that uh, has been peaked in your mind and your soul and your spirit, and you've been journeying with us through it. If you have, please, I would like to know kind of what God's been teaching you, and the way you can do that is just put the hashtag on any tweet or any Facebook thing, and I read through those on a regular basis just to see what God is teaching our people through this whole process, and uh, we'll be glad to be praying for you that way. It helps us a lot. This is not a journey that we go through uh, alone. This is not new. This is something uh, I think mankind has been journeying trying to answer this question, and some have felt miserably at it. Some have been able to mask it. They mask it with success. Now, don't confuse your job with your purpose, and don't confuse success with your purpose. Uh, you can be a successful derelict and, uh, and get by with it, okay? Uh, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something deeper, And why is God giving you breath today? Why is he hopefully going to give you breath tomorrow? Elvis Presley has sold more albums in his death than he did in his life. Um, Having formerly lived in Memphis, I can appreciate the king. Uh, I can appreciate barbecue. And uh, whenever you think about Memphis, that's the two things you think about. Graceland and Elvis and all that kind of stuff. But he was very successful on the stage, but very much a troubled individual in his soul, in his spirit, off stage. I'm not, don't just take my word for it. The man died at age of 41 or 42 of a drug overdose, obese, struggling with his purpose in life. Even his ex-wife, Priscilla, made this statement about his life at the end of his life. Elvis never came to the terms with who he was meant to be. Just think about that. All the success, all the accomplishment, struggled with knowing who he was meant to be or what his purpose in life was. He thought he was here for a reason, maybe to preach, maybe to serve, maybe to save, maybe to to care for people. That agonizing desire was always with him, and he knew he wasn't fulfilling it. So he'd go on stage and he wouldn't have to think about it. What a tell that we go on about life and we go on pursuing stuff and chasing stuff and making money and we go on almost medicating ourselves from that dark question that we're raising to the surface. Why am I here? Why do I exist? And we're hopefully getting some some tried and true answers as we go through this journey together. And so if you've gotten off course, if you've fallen behind, don't worry about that. Just start where you're at. Just pick it up where you left off and, and, and take off from, from there. If you never started, get on the journey with us. Pick up the book and start your own journey to figuring out. Now, each week we've tried to zero in on one or two verses. And we even said memorize this verse because we think this verse encapsulates one of the reasons you're here And we want to talk about the fourth reason you're here today and why I believe you're here, and we'll finish it up in the next couple of weeks. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, I think it is one of those verses. And I want us to memorize it this week. It says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, if you just read that verse in reverse, sorry to use the word so much, but if you just read the verse in reverse, you'll notice that long before you existed, long before you were conceived, long before your parents were even together, God had a purpose for your life. God knew there was a time, there was a place, there would be an hour, there would be a day that you would come on this earth, and he prepared before your existence something for you. Now, what was that something? That something was, again, reading it in reverse, was about good works. How would you understand and how would you embrace those good works? You would do it through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then you would begin to understand God's workmanship in you. Now, if anybody ever says you're a piece of work, say thank you, all right? They mean it as an insult, but you can take him to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You can say, you better believe I am. I am God's workmanship. In fact, this word workmanship is the Greek word that we get our English word poem from, poemea. And it means this, that we are a rhythm. We are a piece of art. We are so unique. There's a rhythm, there's a rhyme, there's, a, there's an element to us of God's handiwork on us. Did you hear that? There's an element to us of God's handiwork on us. And he's making and shaping and forming you. This is not just a self-esteem message. This is something bigger than that. All right? We're not just talking about you're great, you're great, you're great, have happy thoughts. We're talking about you're great because God is working in your life. So let's get to know the creator. Let's get back to his original design. Let's not misrepresent the creator and who he says we are and what he wants to do in us. Job said this in Job 10, verse 8, the oldest book in the Bible, all the way back, they were saying this, your hands shaped me and made me. You're a very unique individual. And I mean that's a compliment, okay? You're a very unique individual. Max Licato in his book, The Cure for the Common Life, said like this, Da Vinci painted one Mona Lisa. Beethoven created one Fifth Symphony. And God made one version of you. You're it. You're the only you there is. And if we don't get you, we don't get you. You're the only shot we have at you you can only do something, you can only do something no one else can do in a fashion that no one else can do it. Please hear that. The uniqueness of you, the craftedness of you, the poem that you are, the art that you are is a very unique thing. Now, I know as we sit here and we see these, as, uh, these students graduate and walk across the stage, we're, we're talking about their dreams and we're encouraging them to pursue something meaningful in life. But let me say to you adults who are in your mid-30s or 40s, who are stuck in a rut, who are just figuring This is the rest of my life like this. Please understand this. You're here today because God designed you to be here. And there's something unique about that. And I don't know all the answers and I don't know all the intricacies of it. But I hope you realize that you were shaped for this day and this hour. Now, this word shape is a very key word 
All right, it's an acronym that I want to kind of just quickly unravel for us. And SHAPE stands for something. I want you to start thinking of the different components of your life. SHAPE stands for spiritual gifts. You have a spiritual giftedness. We're actually going to read one of the verses that points that if you're a follower of Christ today, you have gifts that you don't have when you're not a follower of Christ. Now, there's a lot of theological debate of when did these gifts come? Were they dormant? Were they there? Did, did, did God just redeem them as he redeemed you? And there's, we're not going to get into all of that. All right. The mere fact that you're a follower of Christ tells me this, that there's a gift given to you or multiple gifts given to you. There's also heart. You have passion. There's something in your life that you're longing for, that you like to do, that you're passionate about. There's abilities that you have that I don't have. Lots of them. That encompass this room and you bring something to the table that is so very unique from a different angle, from a gender, from age, from life experiences and personalities. All of this has helped to shape you. In fact, I'll just say this about the experiences. Sometimes the experiences are the greatest education of shaping you in life. Because you have gone through things that I have not gone through. In fact, I will say this, that I will, I will just bet that it has been the most difficult experiences of your life, the most trying experiences of your life, the most painful experiences of your life that have taught you the most and that have shaped you the greatest. So how can I take the shaping of my life? How can I figure that out? How can I embrace that? How can I unveil that? How can I release that part of me that God has worked into me and is still working into me? And that's the big question that we need to kind of unravel a little bit today. Now, what we have online for you today, and this is not a you plug it and play and it just happens all of a sudden, but we have online a a, a process that will get the conversation started. It's an inventory. It's an online inventory. I encourage you to go to it this afternoon. All right? I'm, not, I'm talking about attack this thing. Don't procrastinate on it. Start unraveling who you are. Start diving into this shape of how God has shaped you, this workmanship that God has created in you. And start doing it. It's free online. You can fill it out. It will give you the results immediately. All right? Also, let us know how, how you think about it. What you think about it. Do you agree with it? Do you disagree? If you want to talk with one of our pastors about it, then we are available for that. As of right now, find in your Bibles the book of 1 Peter. You'll go back in the back part of your Bible. You can see my Bible. It's in the very back section there. And you can find 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter 4. And we find Peter, who is one of Jesus' closest disciples, writing this book. First of the books that he has written. Some people believe that he actually was a part of writing John Mark, that it was actually his accounts that helped John Mark to write out the Gospel of Mark. But this is one that we believe that that Peter writes, and Peter is a lot like you and I. He's on, he's off, he's hot, he's cold. He's one moment Jesus calls him the rock, the next moment he calls him Satan. So, I mean, he's kind of like you and I. We're on and we're off, we're hot and we're cold, and that's what you get with Peter here in this situation. But what Peter does is he does point to, and some people have called this one of the simplest books to read, is that we have got to realize why we exist. And we got to live it out because this world is shaky and quaky and all messed up and we got to figure it out. So here, let's begin reading in, in, in verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. All right. He talks, starts by talking about end time stuff. He says, therefore, because we're talking about the end of all things. And if you believe that your life will one day come to an end, then, then it's time to, to do what he says next. If you believe this world will come to an end, that Jesus will come back again as I do, then, then we need to pay attention 
We need to, what does he say? We need to get some self-control. We need to sober up. We need to get serious about life here. This is not a game. This is not a dress rehearsal. We get one of these babies called life. What are you going to do with it? How are you going to live it? Sober up. Get some control about you for the sake of prayers. Above all, keep loving one another. Now, as you notice when we go through this, you're going to find again and again and again, he's going to say one another, one another, one another. We'll come back and talk about that. You can circle as we go. Since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received the gift, use it to serve, what does it say again? One another. As good stewards of God's varied grace. We'll come back and talk about that. Whoever speaks as one speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength of God, that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified. This is the end goal. All right, to bring glory and honor to him through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. When you look at this passage, you find a very short passage here, but it does bring out a very clear thing for all of us to understand what we're about. We are called, we're put on this earth to serve God. I hope you see that. The end of this all whole thing is for God's glory and it's going to happen and we need to be about it and we need to serve one another. Yes, but how do we do this? We serve God when we serve others. We serve God by serving others. And serving one another is going to be part of that factor. And in one word, if you want to just sum it all up, it's, it's ministry. Is your life a ministry to other people? Are you serving one another? Are you in their life? Are you a part of somebody's life and pouring into somebody's life? Jesus said this in Matthew 20, verse 28. He said, your attitude must be like my own. What was his attitude? For I did not come to be served, but to serve. I become like Christ. I serve God when I am serving others. And so I need to embrace that and understand that. So how do I serve like God? How do I serve like Jesus and how do I unravel this? Number one is serving like Jesus will mean that I'm going to have to be available. There's an availability factor. Am I available for God to use? Or am I caught up doing my own thing? Verse 7, again, he points it out. He says, get self-control, sober-minded. Listen, he he talks about it on the basis of the end times. He said, don't get caught up in the end times. The end times shouldn't just fascinate us. It should transform us. So you want to really get serious about life and having a total perspective on life, we need to get sober and understand what this gig's all about. We only get one of them. What's it about? Max Licato, again, in his book, Cure the Common Life, he said, but can you be anything you want to be? Question mark. If you're uniquely made, now stop. Think about that. If you're uniquely made, can you really be anything you want to be? I'm afraid a lot of us in our self-centered lives find out, try to find, and again, try to find again and again and again, what is my life or what do I want to do? What do I want to do? You can be unhappy. 
one. You can be an unsatisfied one. You can be the one who's 87% of the workforce that doesn't like their work. You can be 80% of the people who don't feel like their talents are being used. You can be a statistic. You don't want to be a statistic. You want to live out what God has shaped you, how God has shaped you in this world. And the way we're going to do that is to come and sober ourselves, get control, get some understanding. We love the fact that God is the center of the universe as long as we are the center of his universe. We want to be the center of attention. And that becomes a problem because he is God and he is to be the center. So he points us, what he does, what Peter does here is he points us to look outward. He says in three different verses, three different times, one another, one another, one another. Did you notice that? I just underscore it. What we're going to do, if we're going to sober ourselves, if we're going to get a focus, is we're going to have to turn our eyes off of ourselves and turn them on to others. One another, again and again. In fact, he says one another so many times in Scripture. He says it 74 different times. That we are one another. We're to pray for one another. We're to embrace one another. We're to give hospitality to one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to one another, one another, one another, one another. That means you're in my life. I'm in your life. I need to pour into you. You need to pour into me. We are, are and should be about one another. Here's the problem, though. We live in a hedonistic, self-centered society. We live in a full world. Our plates are overflowing. I don't have time, Mike. I'm sorry you're asking more of me. Please, I get that. I have more on my plate right now than I can say grace over. And I know you do as well. And I know that the plate runneth over and your plate's full. But here, here's one common ground we have with Jesus. So was Jesus. His plate was full and running over. He had to get up early in the morning before the sun even got up just to have time to pray. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, you read it for yourself. He had to get up, go away to a private place just to get away and have time for himself and time for prayer. He lived a very busy life. He'd be walking through the streets and the children would want to come to him. People would want to bring their children to him. And the disciples would be pushing the children away because he had more significant things to do. And he'd stop and he'd say, no, 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 bring the children to me. He'd be walking through the crowds and people would reach out and touch his garment just to be healed by him. He would stop in the crowd and say, who just touched me? And what would his disciples say? Well, how are we supposed to know? There's a crowd of people around you. He walked slowly through the crowds. He had time for people. So another time he was in Jericho. A couple of guys were, were, were ill and needed healing. And they started crying out. Two blind men started crying out, God, would you heal us? God, would you heal us? And this is what it says. It says, the two blind men shouted, Lord, have mercy on us. What's the first response that Jesus does? He stopped. Would you please look up here? Would you stop right now letting your mind wander? Would you stop right now the busyness of your own life? Would you stop? Would you look around at one another? And would you look for the needs around you? See, Jesus, no matter if you're God walking on earth, limited in time, space, and everything else, he still, when he heard the cries of the needs of the people, he stopped. And then what did he do? He turned to the people, turned to these two blind men, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that's a very important question. Jesus asked lots of questions. 307 questions in the New Testament and the Gospels alone that Jesus asked. 307 questions Jesus asked. 
The question he asked more than any other question was this question right here. What do you want me to do for you? He lived a life, here get this, he lived a life with the paradigm of his life to be about other people's lives. He lived with space. He lived with availability. Oh, his plate was crowded. He had demands. At times, he said, guys, we've got to go to the other side just to get away from the people. And he got to the other side, and there were people there. And what did he do? He turned around and fed, fed the thousands of people that were there. Because he was available. Because he was constantly available. Here's the problem, though. We don't have availability many times. Never tell your neighbors to wait until tomorrow if you can help them now. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, said, Do all you good, the good you can by all the means you can, by all the ways you can, in all the places you can, all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. That's availability. What's the barriers of availability in our life? One is self-centeredness. Basically, if it's not about me, if I don't benefit from it, I don't have time for it. Please, please, would you, would, you, would, you, would you stop it? Can I stop it, please? Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. How, how much space are we going to allow in our lives, in our agendas, in our times, in our tables, in, in our days, that we're going to say, okay, I'm going to be a little bit available. I'm going to give a little bit of myself to make this world better. How do we treat this church family? You call this your church home? Maybe some of you do, maybe you don't. But if you call this your church home, is it your home or is it a hotel? You know the difference. I've, I've said this before. Do you raise your kids in a hotel or do you raise your kids in a home? Now think about that for a moment. If you raise your kids in a hotel, what does that look like? Well, mom, dad, are you still making their bed? Are you still folding their clothes? You still cooking all the meals and cleaning up all their messes? Are you still doing all that kind of stuff? Because if you're doing that, you're really just raising your kids in a hotel. The best thing you can do for your kids as soon as you can, wean them off of that kind of dependence and get them independent so that they are contributing to the family, to the home. You get what I'm saying? This means yes, okay? You need to get them from the hotel living to home living as soon as you can. But what about the church? Do you treat this church as a hotel or do you treat it as a home? Is it easy just to come in here and look for the band to be hot and fresh and ready to go? Are you waiting for the bread to be served up hot and fresh and, and good? And maybe you walk out this way, yeah, it wasn't that good. I didn't like it that much. And you know, the kids' ministry is kind of like it used to be. And so let's go find another church. Let's look for something else. It's not like I like it anymore. We treat the family of God like a hotel. Listen, self-centered living, if we're going to be available for, for, for service and to be like Christ and to, to live out the calling that he has on our life, we're going to have to create some space and availability. Number two is busyness. We're just busy people, and we don't have time for it. Opportunities versus distractions. We have lots of opportunities out there, but some of those opportunities, if we really think about it for a moment, may actually be distractions. The only way you're going to know if that, op and listen, let me say this, you people, I, I, I just have to believe we're not talking about temptations that are big, hairy, horribly wrong, that'll land you in prison kind of temptations. I don't, I'm not imagining that in this room today. I'm imagining a lot of the things that can get us off center, that can get us self-centered, 
that can get our plates so busy that we don't have time to serve others, one another's, is simply the good versus the best. And we allow other things to creep into our life and they become distractions away from what God really wants us to do. And the only way I'm going to be able to distinguish, filter, if you will, through the distractions versus opportunities is the word principle. I have to have principles in my life. And once I establish principles, then whatever I put in the blank will help me determine whether or not it's a distraction or an opportunity. We have them all the time. They're everywhere. We live in a land of opportunity. It could be your job. It could be your hobbies. It could be your sport. It could be your traveling soccer, basketball, football, baseball, volleyball, swimming, gymnastics, and the list goes on. Just put it in the blank. It could be your tea time at the golf course. It could be your fishing tournament that you want to be a part of. It could be any number of things. Now, let me just back it up here just a moment. If I live by principles, then I will be able to distinguish and discern what is a distraction versus what is an opportunity. All right? So, for example, in the McDaniel household, and you've heard me say this a hundred times, we give God the first dime out of every dollar, the first day out of every week, the first thought and consideration out of every decision, the first, the first, the first. Anytime we can put him as first, we want to put him as a first. And so what that does is that means the first day out of every week belongs to God. That means if an opportunity rises up in the McDaniel paradigm of opportunities out there, and it happens on Sunday, it's going to pull me away, it's going to pull Lori away, it's going to pull Josh away. No, it's not an opportunity anymore. It's now a distraction. Now you just got to realize we live in this world, and there, I know there's opportunities galore for our children. But I think what we got to realize, what are we doing to them when we say, I don't have availability to serve because I have an opportunity over here. We have gotten our principles off the plate. What are your principles that will steer your life? Eric Little Olympian of 1924 Olympics. You've heard the story. You can watch the Chariots of, movie fire, uh, Chariots of fire movie and, uh, and get the story if you don't want to read the book. But in 1924, he was sent by Scotland to run in the Olympics, to run the 100-meter dash. It was predicted that he would win the 100-meter dash and even set a world's record. Well, come to find out, once he got to the Olympics, he was sent there by his country. Did you imagine the pressure that he was under? Found out that the Olympics trial run for the 100-meter dash was actually going to happen on Sunday. Principles now, is it going to be a distraction or is it going to be an opportunity? His principle was the first day of every week was given to God, and so he was not going to run on Sunday. Even if it cost him the Olympic medal, even if it cost him a world record, he was not going to run. And he operated by that principle. He had people from his own country, from the Olympic committees, just breathing down his back. You've got to run. You've got to run. He did not run, and he did not medal. He did not contend, and he did not get the world's record. Think, what a sad story. What a, what a horrible opportunity. He does go on, and he does compete in the 400 meter, and he does win that, and he does get the gold medal, and he didn't even train for that. But see, the story of Eric Little was not that he was the number one runner in the world for the 100-meter race. That's not the biggest story of his life. The biggest story of his life is that he ends up not even, he goes on running, but he ends up becoming a missionary in China and serving people in prison, teaching them the gospel of Christ. 
The beauty is not even that. The beauty is this, is that Eric Little lived by principles and it helped him determine whether or not he was available for God or not. So my question to you again, are you available? Are you available? Sober up. Get some control about your life and your days and live by principle. Number two, serving like Jesus means being useful. Being useful. I love this verse here, verse 10. He talks about, Something as each has received a gift, you've received a gift. I mentioned that spiritual gifts, you take the inventory, it'll help you on that road to figuring that part out. Use it to serve one another. Your gift is not for your own glorification, it's your own edification. It is used, it is given to you so that you can serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Stewards there is a word that we use for banking. God entrusts us money. We are entrusted that we are stewards of that. Well, he literally says you are also the steward of a spiritual gift. Are you hoarding it? Are you wasting it? How are you using the way that God has shaped you? Are you being useful or are you just being stagnant on the shelf? This word, he goes on, he says the varied grace. It's the multifaceted elements. Here's something that's so unique about everyone in this room is you're not like me and I'm not like you. You've got life experiences that I don't have. You have been gifted and shaped and brought to this day and this hour. And if God is calling you to this church, to this church, for a beautiful ministry to touch lives, are you being good stewards of the way God made you? Think about it like this. Jared shared this with me recently of a conference that he went to. Just think about it like this. Your DNA, you share 50% of that with a banana. All right? Does that bring you some consolation? All right? 50% of your DNA is the same as a banana. 96% of your DNA is the same as a chimpanzee. All right? So we're getting closer. You share 98.5% of your DNA with everyone else in this room. All right? That's Jared's cousin there. I'm kidding. All right? You share a, a portion, a large portion. We share it all with one another. And we share this with one another. But now listen to this. There is 1.5% of you that is only you. It will only be you. It is that multifaceted grace of God, the manifold grace of God being expressed in you. What makes you unique? And how can you take that unique giftedness that God has given you and how can you employ that, use that, be good stewards of that for his glory? Some of y'all have gone through life experiences as a teenager. You experience hurt and pain and loss. What it would mean to the teenagers of this generation if you could pour into them some of the hurt and the loss that you've gone through and how you process it through by just mentoring them on a Wednesday night. What about, what about some of y'all who, 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 who've been raised in families and, and, and you've never really felt the warm embrace of a, of a mother or a father around you, but you could hold a baby in a nursery and pray over them. You've experienced things that nobody else has experienced. There's 1.5% of you that is not made anywhere else but in you. And if we don't have you, we don't have it. There's some... You can be 40 years old today or you can be 14 years old and you can be useful. 
I, I hesitate to share this story, but I need to. I, I don't want it to seem self-serving in any way, but uh, Josh, our 14-year-old, went to youth camp this past summer, and, and God really rocked him. It was nine months ago, maybe ten months ago now, and God really got a hold of him in a big-time way. And he came back, and he was ready to take his lawn mowing money. Now, he, he only has two yards, our yard and the neighbor across the street. But he makes some pretty good money off two yards for a kid who doesn't have any expenses. And I point that out to him often. All right. And so as, as, as he's making this money, he comes back from camp and he's ready to give it all away to some mission of God around the world. And again, I want to take nine months and I'm going to squeeze it into 90 seconds. And I just want to say that we looked around the world. We looked in India. We've looked in West Africa. We looked at different places and different organizations and nothing ever happened. In fact, one of those things that we, we didn't know exactly how to handle it. As an, uh, there's no book on this on how, to, how you handle this with your kid. You come back and that's a camp high for sure. But there was something deeper. He was really committed to this. So we said this, Josh, if you, whatever dollar you save will match it. Over the course of the summer, he saved $300. You do the math on that, doesn't take a rocket scientist, $600 worth of money. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do with it? So we never found anything. We just spent a few weeks back in, Z- in Zambia, back where we lived for four years, and we linked back up with Memory. Memory, if you've ever heard the story, and I can't go there uh, today, but Memory was an orphan child that we should have adopted a long time ago. We've kind of adopted her uh, in a long-distance relationship now, and and uh, she got married a few years ago. She has two children, Faith and Blessed, and we're kind of excited to see her kind of grow up, even though it was, again, so much to go into that. I can't go into it. But go over there this time and come to find out her husband has left her, left her with all kinds of debt and left her with absolutely nothing. She had to move in with some aunt and uncles and had nothing. And so we determined that we're going to do something at this point. We're going to figure something out. And that's when it clicked. And Josh stepped on the scene with his $300 matched by $300, $600. And we decided that we were going to help Memory get her life established. And so we took her to the market and we bought her stuff and we got her furniture and we rented her a little one-room apartment uh, at the end of this mud hut, brick hut home here. And we're moving her in and Josh is there with faith around his neck and, and they're walking through the market and they're buying stuff that with his money that he collected, that he did on his own. And again, I'm not trying to self-serve and brag on my kid, but I'm proud of him right now about this uh, this point and how he's doing this. We bought her a cell phone. We just we're not trying to create dependence. We're trying to raise her up and just get her going. And we talked to her on Mother's Day. And she's now in this little one-room mud hut home. We talked to her on Mother's Day. And she tells us now she has a business going out in front of her house selling clothes. But it happened when a 14-year-old boy was first of all available. And then he took what he had, lawn mowing money. And he looked for a way he could be useful. And he employed it for God. Listen, I don't know what you have. You may just have lawn mowing money. You may just have you. But guess what? Use all we want. And you is all God wants to use. So just be you. And let God use you in the multifaceted, colored way that he can only use you. Thirdly, now I'm finished. Serving like Jesus means being faithful. 
I want to share with you the verse that probably puts me on the stage today more than any other verse in the Bible. Verse 11, 30 years ago. That's how far, that's how old I am, that's how far back this goes. Verse 11, when I was a sophomore in high school, jumped out at me whenever I was pushing back on God. When God was calling me into the ministry and I was saying, no, God, there's no way you can use me. I can't read. I can't do this. I can't study. I don't like this. I'm not qualified. I'm disqualified, if anything, from my life and the way I've lived. God, no, 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 no. And God said, listen. Took me to verse 11. And this verse is the verse that puts me where I am today. This verse is the verse that enables me to stand before you in any other day of the week because this doesn't come real easy for me. Is this verse. It's like God took me to this verse and he said this. Throw it up on the screen. Do you have the gift of speaking? I said no to that. Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. And it's like God said, Mike, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not going to give you the gifts to do. I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I'm not going to empower you to do. You just do what I ask you to do as far as you want me to do it, as far as, as, far as I ask you to do it, and let me take care of the results. Literally the conversation in my head, I can still remember it. And it was about 30 years ago, about one mile south of here, when it was nothing but pasture fields out here in this area, and a little church plant start up there. There's a Taco Bell next to that church today. You'll know where it's at. And I went to that little church that was just starting up, and I preached my very first sermon to about 60 different people that were in that room. And I've been doing it ever since. Not because I feel gifted, but because every day that God says, you need to stand up and speak. And I'm going to give you the power to speak. Do, not, do, uh, do you have the gift of helping others? Then do it with all the strength and energy. So Mike, whatever you have, just do it and give me all of you. And I'm going to use all of you to do what I want to do. So here's what I'm saying. Listen, don't give anything you don't have. Don't try to be anybody you're not. Just be faithful. Just be useful. Just be available. And let God use you however and whenever he will. 1 Corinthians 4.2, the one thing required of servants is that they be faithful. Jesus ended his ministry after 33 years. He says, I brought you the glory on earth. He said this in his prayer as he's praying to God the Father. He says, I brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And I want to say to you today, we're calling you out. We're asking you to use the gifts, the shape that God has given you. And, in your, and when you walked in today, you probably picked up one of, one of these brochures or got one handed out. And basically, we've got essential ministries throughout our church. And, and basically, in here is telling you why we need people, why we need people like you in these places of ministry. But let me also say this. It's not that we're going to talk you into it. We want you to go where God's calling you and has shaped you to go. You also have a card. If you didn't grab one, grab one on your way out. Pray about it all week and be thinking about where is it that God is shaping me to be used by God within this church? God can use you outside this church, but where is he? If this is my church, where am I to be used inside this church?
as my family. I want Jesus to say to me, as he said in Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been given, you have been faithful with a few things, so I will put in charge of you many things. Come and share with the master's happiness. I want God to say, God, I want God to say, Mike, you did what I asked you to do when you asked me to do it. And so I'm going to bless you for that. I want you to get to know some of our people, our people, and why they do what they do in our church. Watch this. Hi, I'm Cynthia Gregory. I'm David Mills. My name is Chris Sweetall. My name is Jason Oglesby. I'm Andre Moore, and I'm a minister here at uh, Grace Point Church. One of the reasons I do what I do is I love making people feel like they've come home. I know every time, whether you're a guest or a member, I personally want to make them feel like this is their home. Uh, for me, it's really all about planting seeds, man. Um, by that, I really mean investing in, in others, fully understanding that the work that we do, the ministry that we do, is not something that we might actually see the reward for. It might, it might be something that takes fruit that day, but it could be something that happens 20 years from now. And, and, that, and that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm fully okay with that um, because what we're really doing is not really about, it's not about me. It's not really about us, you know. One time I had a parent say to me, and it, we were actually at a different location, and she said, I love dropping my child off with you guys when it's your turn to work because it feels like I'm dropping them off with my family. And that's kind of the environment that we want to have is that we want it to be like we're just an extension of their family that is there to help just grow their children in their faith with the Lord. Really what I try to do is, is use my skills and abilities to uh, help um, facilitate, help create an environment to help people to worship and to, you know, to come to the Lord and uh, to really feel His presence. As we're teaching, we're also learning. You know, these stories are becoming fresh and new to us again. And so that is a really great thing for our family to learn and grow and we go back and talk about it after church and it's great for us to grow that way together. Uh, we've been ministered to, we've been loved on through good and bad times and um, ultimately that's, that's what this is all about and I think that's what is great about Grace Point, uh, is great about the opportunity to minister is to build up believers and do life together. Every member is a minister and every ministry is meaningful. So why minister? Why serve? Because you're the hands and feet of Jesus. Because in serving, you find significance. And because you have a story to tell of God's grace and His truth that He has rescued you. And you can share that story through serving kids or serving coffee or shaking hands or running lights. You can share that great story ministry. We aren't just looking for volunteers to fill holes. We want to awaken you to the truth that you have been shaped for ministry. You heard me say a few weeks ago that it takes 250 volunteers to function around here on a week-to-week basis. We're taking the word volunteer and throwing it out of our vocabulary. You're ministers. It takes 250 ministers just to function as a church. 
And that's a that's significant number of people. And I don't want you to just quickly push it off and say, oh, that's somebody else. Listen, if God's called you here, you are that somebody. You're the, you're the you that only you can be. And so we want you to take this time and we want you to think about your life and how willing are you to be involved with our student ministry on Wednesday night or small groups on, uh, uh, during the week or whatever in place of ministry you could be a part of. You've got the brochure. You might already know today and you might be ready to, to put ink on paper and say, that's for me. That's where God's gifted me and called me. I'm ready to plug and play. I'm ready to be a part. You can take this out. You can see there's a few across the stage already this morning. There'll be an opportunity next week if you want to fill out your, your survey, your assessment, and then come back with that. You can certainly do that. But if you're like ready, say, Mike, I'm ready to be in, plugged in and be available and be useful and to be faithful about what God's called me to do. I'm ready, and let's do it now. One more verse for you. Throw yourself into the work of the Master, confident that nothing you do for Him is a waste of time or effort. What you do, we're not going to ask you to do mentally meaningless stuff. We're going to ask you to do meaningful, significant stuff in people's lives. We have a motto around here. Every member is a minister, and every ministry is meaningful. If you're touching lives, you're helping people come to faith in Christ, helping people feel comfortable in the church, teaching a child, the stories of Jesus, it's meaningful. This is your time to reflect, to respond, to say yes. You can come and lay them at the, at the steps today. If you want to go home and pray about it, you can do that. This is your time. Would you stand? Would you sing with us?